In the previous episode, we saw Albert Anastasia rise from a poor immigrant dock worker to become the head of the notorious Murder Incorporated, the Mafia's killing agency. He'd been hand-picked by none other than Lucky Luciano, the godfather of the modern Mafia himself. So when Luciano was sentenced to 30 years in prison by prosecutor Thomas Dewey, Anastasia's first impulse was to kill Dewey in retaliation. But that was against the rules. So if Thomas Dewey had been assassinated, it's almost guaranteed that the top-level mobsters in New York City at the time would face incredibly intense pressure from both you know, city, state, and federal authorities. Federal authorities being the most you know, dangerous as far as the uh, underworld was concerned. So it would have been a very bad career move for the mob. Next on the list for Dewey's war on organized crime was Anastasia's trusted partner at Murder, Inc., his friend Louis Lepke Buchalter. But when the commission is faced with continued pressure from authorities, anyone is expendable. This is Mafia. In November 1936, with a murder charge leveled against him, Buchalter was on the run. Anastasia, fearing that his friend and partner could face a similar outcome to Luciano, if not worse, called on the Murder Incorporated network to keep Lepke in hiding. The word gets out, gets to Lepke, you're next on Dewey's hit list. Now, he already seen Schultz get killed, he's seen Luciano go to jail, and he's in hiding. Bernard Whalen is the author of Undisclosed Files of the Police. They don't know, have any idea where he is, uh, the government. Some say he's overseas, he's went to Jerusalem. Uh, turns out he's in Brooklyn the whole time. Prosecutor Thomas Dewey cranked up the pressure by offering a $25,000 reward for Lepke's capture. So Anastasia decided to take matters into his own hands and destroy Dewey's case the only way he knew how. With a list of rats provided by Lepke, he put Murder Incorporated to work eliminating key witnesses. He's a guy that says witnesses have to go. And if somebody, God forbid, witnessed him killing him, that person was dead too. That was his, one of the things that probably made him successful. He knew that was one thing that was ingrained in him, no witnesses. And so uh, people that uh, either they were killed who witnessed it, or they were paid off, some disappeared and we never heard from them again. But far from making Lepke's problems go away, Anastasia's killing spree only intensified them. Dewey was now publicly declaring the body count and emphasizing that Lepke was a dangerous fugitive. Even the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, was insisting Lepke had to be caught at all costs, the whole law enforcement machinery was operating on full steam, using every tool available to capture Lepke. And more than anything, they were putting immense pressure on the mob. Anastasia was called in front of the commission, made up of the heads of the 24 major mafia organizations in the United States. They presented him with a shocking solution. Ernest Volkman, author of Gangbuster. There was so much publicity about Buchalter that created a real problem. Uh, and it was decided 
we can't have him on the lam like this. There was too much pressure. There was a nationwide manhunt. You know, it's got to end. Well, how can we end? Because Bookhalter is facing very serious charges. He's got narcotics charges. He's got a murder charge. He's got racketeering charges. Who's going to surrender under those circumstances? It is then that they go to Anastasia and say, uh, here's what we're going to do. You, because the only guy that Bookholder really trusts, you will go to Bookholder and you will tell him, we have worked out a deal with Dewey. And the deal is, if you, Lepke, surrender, you'll face a relatively minor charge, maybe five years. The commission had decided that in order to protect themselves, Lepke had to be sacrificed. And they wanted Anastasia to bring him in. But as the commissioner always argued, look, no one is above the commission. No one is above the organization. And it is necessary, when necessary, to sacrifice for the sake of the organization. Anastasia was faced with a terrible decision. Turn his friend in, or get on the wrong side of the commission. On August 24, 1939, after an astonishing three years on the run, an unsuspecting Lepke drove with Anastasia to a meeting with the FBI, where he believed he would turn himself over in exchange for leniency. Lepke believes him. Why not? He's worked with him side by side. He's given him orders, seen him kill people. He has no reason to believe that Anastasia's going to lie to him. And on that basis, Anastasia did the betrayal of his life. He went to Bookhalter and said, look, we've got this deal. Dewey'll settle for a plea deal. Uh, serve maybe a couple of years in prison, everything will be beautiful. There was, of course, no deal. Anastasia had chosen the commission over his friend. He'd betrayed his partner in crime. It was a lie. Anastasia knew it was a lie. Bookholder got out, dutifully surrendered, and of course immediately faced serious charges, and eventually wound up being executed in an electric chair. Uh, that act of betrayal by Anastasia put him in the mafia's debt. I mean, that was that was a great favor that he did for them. Uh, by all accounts, Anastasia was not happy to do it because he had become generally friendly with the with the Bukholder. On March 4, 1944, Lepke became the only major mafia figure to be executed by electric chair. It was a burden Anastasia would shoulder for the rest of his life. He had sacrificed his friend in order to save his own skin. If he ever felt bad about something, this would probably have been the one time. It demonstrated Anastasia's commitment to the whole commission idea, which is that the organization was superior to everything, even your own personal feelings. And if, as Luciano once said, if you have to send your mother to the execution block, you do it. If it helps the organization, that's just the way it is. Deep down, Anastasia was beginning to fall out of love with the commission. In 1940, he stood alone as the head of Murder Incorporated when a new problem arose. One of his best hitmen was arrested and charged for a murder that was committed back in 1933. Bernie Whalen. <laughs> 
So Kid Kid Twist Abrams has no problem killing people, much like Anastasia. They're from the same mold. But unlike Anastasia, when the uh, authorities get the goods on him and tell him, hey, we've got the case against you, you're going to go to the electric chair, he decides it's time to talk. And with that, he starts giving up a lot of gangsters, including Albert Anastasia. Rell spilled the beans. He knew everything that Murder Incorporated had done. When Abe Rellis began to talk, he told, he told about 63 murders that he had seen himself, and many of which the cops had never even heard of. Nathan Ward is the author of Dark Harbor. He just proceeded to talk for 11 days. And it was so ghoulish that it sickened stenographers. They had to like replace them in a in a group because they just had no idea the the the, the uh, bail hooking and the shootings and the incinerations and the uh, just the all the horrors that he was describing. One by one, Rells ratted on his former colleagues, including the man who ran Murder Inc. Rellis, it turned out, had the most amazing photographic memory anybody had ever seen. He filled 69 stenographer's notebooks. He could remember details from 10 years before. And significantly, he remembered a lot of details about one Albert Anastasia. And, among other things, he said, I know about Albert Anastasia personally strangling Peter Panto. Peter Panto was an outspoken union activist who got on the wrong side of the mafia when they controlled the docks. Nathan Ward. Um, New York, uh, by the 30s, was the biggest port in the world. Um, but so much was stolen through uh, organized thievery that it, it, result, it was like a national tax. That was what the whole system was. There were 900 peers and uh, they each had hiring bosses. Uh, some of them were part of the system. Others, like Pete Panto, had been hired despite their opposition to the corruption. Uh, it was all about uh, whether the men respected you. And if you could get the ship turned around quickest, uh, unloaded and loaded, then they had to hire you even if you didn't go along with some of the other things that were supposed to be done. Um, and that's the case with, with, uh, with Panto. It's like, uh, he hated the system, but they had to hire him because he had the allegiance of the crews. And Anastasia hated Peter Panto for not playing along with the Mafia's operations. Until one day he was uh, invited into a limousine at the end of his block, he got a call at the, the candy store down the block and disappeared in uh, July 1939 and um, was not seen again until he was dug up in Lindhurst, New Jersey. New York-based news journalist Diana Blass has carried out research into the history of the Mafia. Anastasia was so enraged and disgusted that someone like Panto would defy him and the mob. Like, what are you doing? That... He personally strangled him with his hands and then buried his corpse in a pit of quicklime. Kid Twist knew where the body had been dumped. And when detectives found Panto's remains, it was a grisly sight. With this evidence and more, 
prosecutors finally had a rock-solid case against Anastasia. Rellis was the star witness. He was going to put all of Murder Incorporated away, including Albert Anastasia. And so they stashed him in a motel in Coney Island, called it the Half Moon Motel, uh, Hotel, up on the sixth floor. And he was a 24-hour police guard, five policemen. The commission didn't appreciate all this attention around Anastasia or the threat of his arrest. Not only was it bad for business, it could end up badly for all of them. Anastasia knew too many of their dirty secrets. So the commission decided to step in and fix it. Kid Twist had to be prevented from testifying. With days to go before the trial, Kid Twist Rells was in his guarded room at the Half Moon Motel. Police officers sat outside the door, regularly checking in on him. Everything seemed okay. That night, the police guard checks on him in his room. 3 a.m. in the morning, he's asleep. Doesn't think anything of it. Goes back out into his room. And in the morning, they go to check on him. He's not in the bed. The window's open. And there's a, the sheets are tied to the radiator. It looked like an audacious escape attempt until the detectives see the scene six stories below. And they look out the window, six floors below, five floors, on the restaurant roof attached to the hotel. There's Rellis's body all twisted. He's dead. Now the question is, who did it? Kid Twist wouldn't be testifying in any trials. Kid Twist, he became known as the canary who could sing but could not fly. Somebody threw him out a window. Now, we now know that, in fact, what happened, the commission got really worried. Because it's one thing to have some of these other jabones from Murder Incorporated go away. It's another thing for somebody like Albert Anastasia. That's, that's a problem. There was grand jury testimony by the five policemen, all of whom testified, and incredible. They all fell asleep at the moment that, uh, that Rellis went out the window. Who would have thought? They knew nothing, they heard nothing, they saw nothing. Person, persons unknown, a lot of people suspect it was the cops themselves, threw him out the window. With that, the case against Albert Anastasia went out the window. The commission had stepped in to save him, but times had changed for Anastasia. Even though Kid Twist never got to testify, Murder, Inc. had suffered in the aftermath of Thomas Dewey's relentless campaign. Four members of Murder, Incorporated uh, went to the electric chair. Uh, two of them became state's witnesses, and with that, that pretty much caused the murder incorporated to, to disintegrate. There was really no, no point in continuing it. So with Lucky Luciano behind bars, the commission disbanded Murder Incorporated and relegated Anastasia to a lowly underboss position in New York's Mangano crime family. To Anastasia, this was a massive slap in the face. If anything, he felt he was now ready to step up, not down. Selwyn Rabb is the author of Five Families. He became ambitious. First of all, he was getting older. He didn't want to be second, second in command or second banana. And 
within the mafia, there's always the suspicions that somebody out, somebody's out to get you, that you're never totally secure. And there was a hint of paranoia in Anastasia. The Mangano brothers were in charge. He wasn't related to them. Would they, would they help him out? And he became presumably convinced that the Manganos wanted to get rid of him. And as bosses, they could. They wouldn't have to go to the commission. So even though he'd been a loyal, dedicated uh, flunky or vassal for many years, he could be a marked man. Anastasia was done following the rules of the commission. It didn't take long for him to get into a fight with his new boss, Vincent Mangano, as well as with Vincent's younger brother, Philip. But he decided some eventually that Mangano was double-crossing him, wasn't cutting him in on enough of the profits, and that he was doing too much for Mangano. And uh, he may have been a little paranoid. He decided or thought Mangano might be out to kill him. So again, he was tough enough and perhaps smart enough to act first. Kill before you're killed. As he aged, he grew impatient. He didn't want to wait and see if indeed he might be the next boss or he might be the next hit, hit victim. Impatience began to rule him. Anastasia then decides, ah, I have a solution. I will kill Philip Magano, and I will kill his boy. In April 1951, a woman in a fishing boat discovered Philip Mangano's body in a marshland area of Jamaica Bay in Brooklyn. He'd been shot three times. Shortly afterwards, Vincent, the head of the family, vanished and was never seen again. Selwyn Rabb. Biggest violation you could commit in um, the mafia was trying to kill a boss without the authorization of the commission. The commission knew that Anastasia was responsible for the Mangano murders. He tried to argue that he acted in self-defense without ever explicitly admitting to the killing. And he thought he could get away with it. Other bosses respected him. He had carried out their wishes, too, with Murder Incorporated. So he was respected. Uh, he had to have some kind of courage to do this. And he did, and he got away with it. Anastasia's gamble paid off. To keep the peace, the commission accepted that the Manganos were out to kill him. They even agreed to make him the boss of the Mangano family. But not everybody on the commission was happy with that decision. Some members thought Anastasia was becoming too ambitious. Anastasia's fatal flaw was he never remembered what Lucky Luciano had said. There should never be a boss of bosses. The other members of the commission, began to see Anastasia as a threat. Uh, he was not the kind of guy that they could relax with. They realized that in Anastasia they were looking at absolute naked homicidal power, madness. And they understood he was just as likely to turn on them as anybody else especially one member of the Mafia who was about to make a power grab of his own. There was one guy on the commission named Vito Genovese. Vito Genovese was a guy who decided, well, like Albert, he wanted power. He wanted all of it. 
And what he wanted was to take over the Genovese organization, which then was headed up by Frank Costello. And he saw a way to get at Costello by getting at Anastasio. And he began to talk to the other people on the commission and say, look, I told you, this guy is a nut. He's a homicidal maniac. He's doing crazy things. And soon enough, Anastasia gave Vito Genovese exactly the excuse he was looking for to bring him down. It was 1952, and Anastasia was at the height of his power. Now, you would have thought he'd be satisfied with it. He's a multimillionaire. He lives in a beautiful mansion. Uh, All charges against him have uh, disappeared. Everything is beautiful, right? No. Albert wants more. And to get more, he starts to make mistakes. Big mistakes. Mistake number one. Arnold Schuster. On February 18th, a 24-year-old man named Arnold Schuster was on his way to work in New York City when he spotted a familiar face. Arnold Schuster was a young clothing salesman from Brooklyn who one day is on the subway, and he looks over at a guy, and he looks again, he looks again, and he realizes the man sitting over there is the infamous bank robber Willie Sutton, who's on the lam. Uh, probably the most infamous bank robber in American history. The man who once said, when asked, why do you rob banks so much, Willie? And he said, because that's where the money is. He had probably robbed $3 million from banks uh, during the course of his career. He escaped from prison three times. And in 1952, he was on the lam again. Uh, The police in New York City are given a photograph of him to carry in their memo book so that they ever come across a guy who looks at they can refer to this picture. And they've been carrying him around for two years since he escaped in 1950 with no luck. Schuster decided to do his bit for society. And Arnold followed him and then called police. Well, Arnold Schuster is an instant celebrity. Talk about your 15 minutes of fame. He's on the front page of the very paper. The mayor gives him an award. He is a public spirit citizen. These are the kind of citizens we want who fight crime. Willie Sutton was quickly arrested and sent back to prison. Schuster's courageous actions turned him into an instant celebrity. Bernie Whalen. Uh, he's on all the talk shows. Not the TV's that big then, but it's out there, so he's on, he's on TV. He's in all the newspapers with his picture. Anastasia's got money. He's got a television when most people don't, and he sees it, and he's infuriated by it. Now, Willie isn't really a, with the mob or anything. He's an independent operator, but he's a legend and a guy that people kind of like because whenever he does a robbery, he never uses a gun. He goes in disguise. He threatens. He puts his hand. Even if he was armed, he never used it. He never got charged with killing anybody or anything like that. Anastasia, though, sees this Schuster, and he's mad. He's a rat. Anastasia's wrath was not to be taken lightly. Ruthless and volatile, with an extremely short fuse, when Anastasia was mad, he would strike out. And that could only mean one thing. I think in his twisted mind there was probably some logic. He hated these type of people. So even though this guy was just a young guy, you know, enjoying his 15 minutes of fame, Anastasia uh, decided he was going to take it away from him. So he puts a hit on the kid, on Arnold Schuster. On March 8, 1952, as the unsuspecting Schuster walked home from work, 
he was ambushed by a lone gunman. Arnold Schuster's gunned down in the street by a hitman. Two bullets, one in each eye, one in the groin. Signs of a mob hit. And although it's never proven that Anastasia was the guy that ordered it, the word was that he was the guy. New York's famed Good Samaritan had paid the ultimate price for indirectly angering the mafia's most vicious boss. On principle. But in the end, this killing would be the beginning of Anastasia's own downfall. Anastasia had broken another of the cardinal rules of the modern mafia. You don't kill civilians. Predictably, the public was outraged. Again, this is sensational. I mean, the papers are full of this. Who would kill this guy, this public spirit citizen, this, this guy who's gotten a medal from the mayor, this wonderful person? Well, this gets back to the commission, which calls Albert on the carpet because number one of the big rules for the commission established 1930, you do not kill civilians. It just brings too much heat and it's pointless. It's not good for business. Albert realizes I made a mistake. Uh, it's a big mistake. Anastasia may have been genuinely repentant, but Vito Genovese saw this as his opportunity to strike. He was keen to eliminate the competition. Genovese is a... Uh, he's everything Anastasia is not if your ultimate goal is the top job. I mean, he was ambitious. He knew who needed to be taken out, and he knew how to um, highlight the craziness of his rival, Anastasia. Genovese had little difficulty persuading a nervous commission that Anastasia was a dangerous liability. So now there was an, uh, an atmosphere of suspicion about Albert. Then Albert commits strike three. After the Mangano brothers and Arnold Schuster... All Genovese needed was one more slip-up from Anastasia, and he didn't have to wait long. Anastasia decided to make moves on the Mafia's gambling operations in Cuba. He was treading on other bosses' toes and damaging lucrative arrangements. It was all Genovese needed to convince the Commission that Anastasia's time was up. By throwing his weight around and the very fear that he was a threat to them, any one of them was enough for them to band together and uh, put out a hit job on one Albert Anastasia. With the green light, Genovese put the wheels of murder into motion. He'd been preparing for this day, and he knew where Anastasia was vulnerable. Albert had a daily routine. He'd go to the barbers for a shave and trim. On October 25, 1957, he went to Grasso's Barbershop in Midtown. Anastasia was relaxed as he made himself comfortable in the barber's chair. He's so unworried that he doesn't even worry about having somebody with him while he's in this barber chair. And he doesn't even really realize that his driver hasn't come back. His bodyguard was across the street getting breakfast. Suddenly, two armed men burst in and opened fire. And they hit him about five times, but they're not failed shots at this point. They're hitting, because he's moving now, boom, boom, and they're hitting him in the arm, shoulder, and stuff. And now he's getting out of the chair, and you know, he's a bad guy. 
and he sees him, but he doesn't really realize right away. He's so disoriented that he's looking in the mirror. And he's swinging at the mirror when the guys are behind him. And he's stumbling around. And in this course, he trips down the ground. And then one of them does the coup de grace, a bullet to the head that kills him. And then they disappear. And we don't know to this day who did it. The guy who had lived by the gun now died by the gun. On October 28, 1957, Albert Anastasia was laid to rest at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. As a testament to his brutal character, only a handful of mourners attended his funeral. Well, it really shows you where Anastasia was as far as his colleagues. None of them attended the funeral. It was his wife, some immediate family members, maybe a couple of associates. But for a guy that was the head of a crime family, there was nobody there. In a way, Anastasia's life as a whole characterized the evolution of the Mafia. Albert Anastasia had any legacy. It was simply this, that if you get a reputation as a violent, too ruthless boss, then you were going to be finished too. It was an era where they wanted more sophisticated, quiet, no hits, no violent hits, no bodies. We wanted more sophisticated, well-organized crime, not just somebody who had a reputation of being known as the Mad Hatter or a great executioner. Those days were over. Albert Anastasia's violence defined an era that became notorious, one celebrated in movies and popular culture. He survived in Luciano's new mafia at the helm of Murder Incorporated. But when this organization ceased to exist, he became obsolete and met an end that was all too fitting for the mob's merchant of death. In the next episode, Tony Spilatro's talent for violence made him the Chicago Outfit's main enforcer to oversee their mob operations in Las Vegas. Tony Spilatro was a cold-blooded killer. I think he got pleasure out of uh, harming people. We reveal how corruption inside the Las Vegas Police Department helped Spilatro to get away with his shady dealings and stay out of jail for a long time. And to find that uh, Spilatro was going to be released back onto the street, it was somewhat devastating. Until there was a new sheriff in town. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabengwa. David McNabb is the series' creative director and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.